Here's the bottom line. Swashbuckling Christianity must yield to cross-bearing Christianity. You've got to lay down the sword so that you can take up the cross. Um, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in John 18 verses 10 and 11. We, we talked through these verses a little bit last week, but I want to kind of zoom in on them and talk about um, the idea of putting away the sword. Put away the sword. As we talk about this longest day in history, this, this, this final 24 hours of the life of Jesus, um, we see this moment that happens in, in the story that happens, and all four gospel writers recount the story, um, and you probably have heard and known the story, and we're going to talk I think there are some important implications of this story and this moment for us. Um, in the spring of 1967, there was a new ride that opened at Disneyland in California. Anyone know what ride that was? It was the Pirates of the Caribbean. Soon after, they opened one at the Magic Kingdom in Florida when, the, when, when that park opened. And uh, if you've been, how many, how many of you have, n- have been on the Pirates of the Caribbean? So you know it's a dark ride with little boats and you float through. Now the one at Disneyland, I've been on both, um, I, did, I hate to say it, is a lot better because the first drop is a lot steeper and longer than the one at the Magic So if you've been at the Magic Kingdom, which we had been at, and then you go to Disneyland, you're expecting just a little, a little bloop, but it drops you into this world uh, full force of this uh, band of pirates and kind of the life they live and the craziness uh, and uh, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me and all the, you know, animatronic characters and all this. Well, um, almost 40 years after the ride opened, uh, Disney thought, you know, we need to make more money. We don't have enough money, so we need, to, we need to make more money. So let's make a movie about the pirates of the Caribbean. And so they developed uh, this, this plot line and this protagonist, this main character, whose name is Captain Jack Sparrow, played by Johnny Depp, South Florida native, used to live uh, a mile away from the previous church I pastored in Miramar, by the way. It's not related to anything, except I think that's kind of interesting. And he plays this character who's a little bit eccentric, or a lot bit eccentric, and, uh, and, and he is um, <clears throat> this, this wild, sort of loose cannon, sword-wielding, rum-drinking guy with lots of eyeliner on, right? Um, and, and what Jack Sparrow is, is he's, he's kind of a take on a, a specific genre of literature or movies called the swashbuckler. I don't know if anyone's heard of the swashbuckler. The swashbuckler, um, Wikipedia, great resource, right? Totally, you're you know, allowed to use it on paper, or no, you're not, but it's still, it's still helpful. Um, a swashbuckler is a genre of adventure literature that focuses on a heroic protagonist stock character who is skilled in sword play, acrobatics, guile, and chivalrous ideals. And you see this in Jack Sparrow. He's kind of a take on, on the swashbuckler. Uh, dictionary.com, another wonderful internet resource, says that it's a swaggering swordsman soldier or adventurer, a daredevil. Now, here's why I bring this up. Here's why I bring this up. I think we contend to have a vision of Christian discipleship, Christian ministry, 
and Christian mission that look a lot like the swashbuckler. We have a sense of fighting this heroic, noble battle for Jesus, stepping into the, into the fray. Um, and, uh, and, and, and if that doesn't work out, maybe just like a street brawl, you know, to fight for the Lord. Well, I think, um, I think we see Peter here. I think we can default to this, the posture that Peter has at the end of John, uh, the, the, that moment in the, in the garden in John 18. Judas thought he would destroy the Lord for a sack of silver. And we see this contrast. And if you read the ends of the Gospels, I think all the Gospel writers set up this contrast between Judas and Peter. Judas, who thought he would destroy the Lord for a sack of silver, and Peter, who thought he would defend the Lord with a sword. And uh, obviously one was much worse, but they were both wrong. John 18, 10, and 11, we saw last week. You'll see it again here. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. This is the only account that gives us the servant's name, by the way. At that, Jesus said to Peter, and it's the only, it's the only account that identifies that it was actually Peter. The other accounts just say a disciple. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? So I'm going to just give you kind of a roadmap for where we're going to go, and then I'm going to pray. I think we are often tempted as Christians to grab the sword. And by that I mean we're tempted to do the Lord's work, but in the world's way. We're tempted to do things we think are for God, but they're actually done in a way that betrays the purposes of God. So we're going to kind of, here's where we're going to go. We're going to talk about ways we're tempted to grab the sword. We're going to talk about what happens when we grab the sword. And then we're going to talk about what does it mean or how can we put away the sword. Like Jesus says to Peter, if we we could go back, Joe, to that, the verse... um, Put the sword away. What does it mean to put the sword away? To stop trying to do the Lord's work in the world's way, to do God's work our way. Let's pray and ask for God's help. If you pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, by your Spirit, I pray that you would speak through your Word as we look at this um, important moment in the story of the gospel of that longest day in history, of that moment in your life, Lord Jesus, in the life of Peter, where he grabs the sword. And Lord, we know, or at least we're going to see, I think that we are tempted to do the same thing in in different ways, and I pray that you would help us to see, see those things, to see the consequences of that and then to think about what it means to, to, to turn away from that and to follow your way, to do your things, your work, in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the first thing. We're, we're often tempted to grab the sword. I think we're, we're tempted, I think especially in our culture, we value 
initiative. We value being proactive. We value the, the kind of the go-getter, the entrepreneurial sort of person who gets things done. And, and I think we can tend to want to get stuff done for Jesus in a way that actually betrays the purpose of Jesus. Um, I think we overly value action and we undervalue contemplation or consideration. Uh, I think we think work matters more than worship. That what we do for God matters more than who we are in God. That what we do for Christ matters more, more than who we are in Christ. When, when Luke tells this story, check this out. I think this is really interesting. Uh, so Jesus is still speaking. Suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, now check this out, verse 49. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? So they asked, Lord, should we do this? Is this what you would want? And then look at verse 50. Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Sort of like when my wife asked me, where do you want to go for lunch? It's not really a question, you know. It's not really something she's waiting for me to answer. It's more of just a way to move from one thing to the next. They ask Jesus, should we strike them with the sword? But they don't wait to hear his answer. They immediately think, should we strike? And they assume they know the mind of Christ. They assume they know the mind of Christ, but they actually oppose His purpose. I think we can do this and fall into this. We can pray, but not wait for the answer. Like I said, we assume that working for the Lord is more important than waiting on the Lord. And I, I've, I've told you this before, but I, just, I am just really convinced that we're going to get to heaven and we're going to go to wherever, you know, Moses' holy grounds coffee in heaven and, 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 uh, and we're going to grab some coffee with any number of Christians through the, and, and any number of the people of God from Adam, <laughs> Enoch, Abraham, all the way down to the present age, Christians in the 1040 window in China, in Iran, in Iraq, Christians throughout the history of the church, and we're going to sit down with them for coffee, and, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm from America in, you know, the 20th, 21st century, and they're going to just go, oh, bless your heart, and pat our hand, and say, you, you're, you're one of those who thinks you can plan and you can strategize so much. I, I really think that um, we have this sense, an over-reliance on the strategies we can make, the strategies we can put together for, for the Lord's work. Um, now, I don't think those things are bad, and I think we need to do those things. We need to plan. We need to prepare. Um, we need to think. We need to act. If no one did anything, all the stuff on the carts for the screen and all that, it, would never, it wouldn't get from that building to this building, right? We need to work, but the question is what is primary, what is first? 
Um, in some ways, I want to draw on throughout this message Francis Schaeffer's wonderful piece called The Lord's Work and the Lord's Way. Um, and I'm going to quote him a number of times um, because, uh, because I think he really nails this. Francis Schaeffer was uh, a pastor and teacher and apologist uh, in the middle part of the 20th century that had a huge impact on a lot of people and had a, a center in Switzerland called Labrie where people, you know, countless people came and heard the gospel and, and became Christians. And, and he, he has a, a piece, it was a talk and then a, 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 an article or essay called The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And he says, under the leadership of Moses and Joshua, the Jews marched when the ark marched. And they stood still when they did not rush ahead if God did not order the ark, which represents to be moved. Sometimes they stayed in one place for long periods. We Christians, individually and corporately, must learn to wait like this. Tongues of fire are not for us. Remember in Acts 2, the Lord says, wait till the Spirit descends, and then the tongues of fire descend on them. Tongues of fire are not if we are so busy doing the clever thing that we never wait quietly to find out whether the ark of the Lord has gone ahead or stayed. I think too often we're, we want to grab the crown without having taken up the cross. Peter wants to grab the sword instead of seeing the Lord shackled, but what he doesn't understand is he's trying to defend Jesus in a way that betrays the purpose of Jesus, and I think we can do the same Things. How do we do this? Here are some ways I think we're tempted, we're tempted to grab the sword. Some ways we're tempted to grab the sword. I don't have, um, I don't think I have these on the screen. Just, just, this is just me kind of thinking, and this is just examples, and I could be, you know, persuaded that maybe there are other ways that are more accurate or whatever, but um, I just want to talk about a few areas. Um, in, uh, in, uh, in our families, um, instead of consecrating our kids to the Lord, I think we, we, there are two temptations. We can ignore our kids for the sake of our own success, or on the other extreme, we can idolize our kids for the sake of their success. Instead of consecrating them to the Lord, we want them to be healthy, we want them to be successful in a in a in a worldly sense of that term. We want them to be healthy, and, and maybe, maybe we don't care if they're rich, but we want them to at least be comfortable. We want them to have a family and own their own home. These things are not bad desires, but the question is, is this our primary desire for our kids? If they told us, like I told my dad, no, I don't want to take over the family business. Uh, I want to I go into ministry. And, and my dad, praise God, was just like, okay, you got to do what God wants you to do. He told, me that, he told me that my whole life, and I believed him, and he meant it. In our finances, I think we can be tempted to accrue assets and wealth rather than focusing on generosity and giving away what God has trust, entrusted to us. We think, there's no way, there's no way I can live on 90% of my income and give 10% away to the Lord. I can't, there's not enough margin for me to take that 10% and to do the other things that I want to do. 
in culture. Um, I think we're tempted to want to cling to our own ways of doing things and our own the, the, the power measure of privilege or, or, or advantage we may have, and to, to think, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself away for the sake of those who are on the margins insofar as it doesn't threaten what I do have. Um, in ministry, in ministry, we're tempted to assume that the Lord wants us to build something bigger something better, something faster. But what if the Lord's will is actually to build something a little bit smaller, a little bit humbler, and, and that's a little bit less in the eyes of the world? In politics, I think we're tempted to choose a partisan team, even if we think of it as the lesser of two evils, rather than saying, you know what? I refuse to choose evil at all. Francis Schaeffer again says, I don't know if I have this quote, Joe. Okay, I do, good. Um, Imagine the devil or a demon entering the room right now. You have a sword at your side. So when you see him, you rush at him and stab him. But the sword passes straight through and doesn't phase him. The most awesome modern weapon you could think of could not destroy him. Whenever we do the Lord's work in the flesh, our strokes pass right through because we do not battle earthly forces. The battle is spiritual and requires spiritual weapons. We can stockpile the ways and the weapons of this world, and they will do no good in a spiritual battle. What happens next? What happens when we grab the sword, when we try to do God's work in the world's way? I have six, six potential implications I'm going to pull out of the, the four accounts of this story in the four Gospels. There may be more, and, and you know, if we see some and you think of some, I'd love to talk about that after. This is, this is an opening discussion, not the final word on this subject. Number one, grabbing the sword often pursues a good goal with good motives, but in the wrong way. I mean, Peter, Peter had a good goal. Like, he wanted to come to Jesus' side and defend Jesus. Like, now, now misguided, yes. Misunderstood, yes. But I mean, like, he wants to be on the right side. He wants to be with Jesus and on on Jesus' side in this fight against this power of Satan, the power of the state, the power of the religious system. He wants, he's chosen the right side. He has a good goal and he has good motives, but he's doing it the wrong way. Look at in John 18, 11, as we've already seen. Jesus said, put the sword away. Am I not to drink the cup? The Father has given me. We talked about last week. The cup is the cup of God's wrath that He has to pour out against the nations. And what the gospel teaches us is that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath against sin so that His people wouldn't have to, so that anyone who will turn from their sin, repent, and trust in Jesus, believe, and, 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 and 
receive the gift of forgiveness, the gift of new life, will be forgiven of their sin and say that Jesus has taken that cup of wrath and drank it down in their place. He says, Peter, you don't understand. This is not first a triumph. This is first a cross. So Peter has good goal. He has a good motive, but he's doing it in the wrong way. Number two, number two, grabbing the sword leads to unintended consequences. Look at Matthew 26, 52, Matthew's account of this. Jesus says, all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. It's like the end of Hamilton, right? You get involved in a duel, you fight with guns, you may end up being defeated by the gun. By the way, in case you didn't notice, he threw away his shot, right? He shoots up in the air, even though he's sung the whole... I mean, he's not going to throw... Anyway, I noticed that one time. I thought that was interesting. Grabbing the sword leads to unintended consequences. All who take up the sword will perish by the sword. When you try to do the Lord's work in the world's way, you begin to invite metrics of success. You begin to invite um, aspects. So, so like, let's just talk about... Um, in The story goes, um, you know, um, American churches... Have, have thought, you know, we need to grow as big as we can, as quickly as we can. And I'm not against church growth. I, you know, 3,000 people saved on the day of Pentecost. Like, I think God can do that. But sometimes what that came, that, that, that goal came at the expense of truth. It came at the expense of discipleship. It came at the expense of seeing people truly converted and, and, and merely content to let people sort of sit and attend Grabbing the sword leads to unintended consequences. If, you know, you, you, you try to do the Lord's work in the world's way, you're going you're gonna to have problems you run into that you didn't expect. Number three, grabbing the sword denies the power of God. Grabbing the sword denies the power of God. Again, Matthew's account here. Jesus says, don't you know or don't you think that I can't call on my Father and He will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? He's like, like, you think I need you to defend me? Like, no, like, I could call on my Father and He would send, He would send a heavenly army that would shake the, this little posse, this little mob that Judas has led here to take me. It, it would, would strike them down. I mean, and in John's account, we see Jesus. They say, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus. He says, I am. And he, he knocks them over with a divine word, a, a claim of the divine name. When we try to do God's work and the Lord's work in the world's way, we're saying that the way of God, the way of the cross, the way of, 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 of Jesus is not powerful enough to do what God wants us to do. We dishonor the Lord and deny His power. Number four, grabbing the sword ignores the dark chapters in the gospel story. The story of the Bible, the story of the gospel, is not a Hallmark movie. It's not just happy and lighthearted all the time. It has devastating and catastrophic moments of darkness. 
Luke's account, Jesus says, I think this is really interesting. Every day I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me, but this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. This is the hour of darkness. Every, every one of our lives, individually, every church story, every, every Christian story, in some way reflects the gospel story, the scriptural story, where there are moments of profound darkness and difficulty. As our guys say at the Bible study on Thursday mornings, you're either coming into a storm, in the middle of a storm, or coming out of a storm. There are dark, there's dark chapters in the story, and the dark chapters make the bright chapters seem all the brighter when you finally get there. Jesus says in, in Mark 14, uh, next slide, um, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. How would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? If I were to call these legions of angels, I would deny the, the Scriptures. I would deny that this story has to play out this way to reveal against the backdrop of the darkness the more startling reality of the light. Again, in Matthew 26, we see again the, the, scriptures, the Scriptures would be fulfilled. Grabbing the sword ignores the dark chapters of the gospel story. Number five, grabbing the sword hurts real people with real names. That's what I, it's so interesting. John's account is the only one that names the servant. John uh, 18, verse 10, the servant's name was Malchus. And um, this, some of you may not be aware, there's a a podcast that's been out for several months now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill um, that's chronicling the, uh, the ministry of Mark Driscoll in Seattle. And, uh, and some of you may or may not be aware of his ministry. He was very, uh, very well known uh, from about 2006 to about 2013. Um, and actually, a book he wrote in 2006 was one of the reasons I wanted to plant a church. Uh, and, and he just had a tremendous influence in many ways for the good. But this, this podcast um, tells the story of the, the, the unfettered ambition, the cost of, to the lives of real people to accomplish this massive mission of building this huge church. Uh, and, and one of the, the lines that kind of echoes through the story uh, is, a, is a comment Mark Driscoll made where he says, uh, there's a pile of bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. Either get on the bus, get on with us, get on the bus with us to accomplish what we're going to accomplish, or you're going to get run over. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been hit by a bus, I imagine that it's not a pleasant experience, and I probably one you won't recover from. He says there's a there's a pile of bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, and by the time we're done, it will be a mountain. Meaning, we don't care who gets hurt, because we are going to get this done. That is, just, that is just totally opposite of the way of Jesus. And when we try to do the Lord's work in the world's way, when we grab the sword, real people get hurt. And, and sometimes, you know, hurt can be unintentional. People get hurt. You know, you know if you're in a family, if you're in any sort of network of relationships, people are going to get hurt, right? That's just, we, we sin against each other, um, but why multiply the problem times 10 
by trying to do what God wants us to do in a way that God does not want us to do it. Now, all that's bummer, but here's, here's, a good, here's the good news. N- number six, Jesus can and he does redeem our failures when we grab the sword. Look at, and you, you probably have, remember this part of the account in Luke's account. He says, Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching the ear of the man, he healed him. So sometimes people do stupid things in a stupid way for the sake of the gospel, and Jesus says, yes, wrong way, but I'm going to use it anyway. In his mysterious purposes, he says, you know, this is not right, but I'm going to redeem it, and I'm going to bring healing. I'm going to show how great I am, even though um, you're kind of showing how terrible you are. I saw a meme this week that was very comforting to me, and I shared it on Facebook, and some of you may have seen it. Um, said when Jesus, it was a quote, and I don't know who it was from, it was just a, like an image card, and it says, when Jesus put a calling on your life, he already t- factored in your stupidity. <laughs> like Jesus knows you're an idiot. He knows I'm an idiot. When he, when he called you to do what he's called you to do, whether you're in the marketplace or whether you're, you're in you know, education or whether you're called to plant a church or called to be a part of a, a new church plant, he already factored in your stupidity. He knows you're an idiot. We're all idiots. But he is good and he can heal and redeem our stupidity. And I praise God for that because I'm, I do a lot of stupid things. And I know you do too. So what now? What now? In other words, how should we put the sword away? When Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away, he put the sword away, how do we do that? Well, I want to draw you back to our three values as a church. We believe a healthy Christian and a healthy church live into three realities. First, number one, pursue wholehearted worship. Pursue wholehearted worship. Wholehearted worship begins with an understanding that the Christian life is not what we have done for God. It's not about our work, but it's what God has done for us. It's about worship. It's about acknowledging that God is the King, that God is the Savior, that salvation is of the Lord. It's not of ourselves, that the most important thing in our lives is not what we do for Jesus, but what Jesus did and has done and will do for us. We, we bring ourselves to the Lord on Sunday and we worship through serving by hauling carts from the storage unit or setting up panels in the kids' space or serving in kids' ministry or setting up music stuff or helping tear down after service. And we come in and we minister just by our presence in the room and taking, taking the time to, to, to speak to someone and, and, and encourage them or just ask them how their week was and let them know that we, we care about them and, and kind of sparking those those. Uh, those flames of relationship and, and building, the, building the family that God has called us to be a part of. And we flow out in that, that, that Sunday worship into Monday through Saturday worship where we're living our life in obedience to God and in the presence of God saying, oh, I want my life to be a living sacrifice, to trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. So recognize that your Christian life is, a, is, is about what God has done for you and you return praise to Him. 
Second, pursue authentic community. We were talking about this in the, the, um, the interest meeting for community group leaders or hosts and just how we really, um, as a church, want to live into this value. And we're, I mean, we're a, a small church, um, and we're even smaller now post-COVID. We, got, we, we lost a little weight, you know, and, and so we have an opportunity now that maybe uh, we won't have in the months ahead, in the years ahead, where it's pretty easy to see people and say hi to them on a Sunday morning. But, but we know that by, you know, God's grace, if, if our church grows as big as he wants it to, we don't, you know, it's up to him. Um, it may be a little harder to do that. So we want to have opportunities for community, for really getting to know one another. Because it can be difficult, you know, as much as we try, after church on Sunday, you know, we're all, you know, we're dropping the speaker down, and we're rolling up the XLR cables, and we're, you know, taking signs down, and we're loading up the carts, and we're trying to connect. You know, it's hard, you know, like, my life feels like it's falling apart. Would you like to talk about it? You know, that, those moments can happen, but we know it can be difficult. And so we need space to, to really connect with one another. And so, you know, that's why we were wanting to get these community groups off the ground. We believe authentic community is a community that is united in diversity. That's why I talk, you know, so often about the fact that we, we come together across these lines of difference that kind of tribalize and segregate the world around us, whether you're old or young or middle-aged, whether you're rich or poor or middle-class, whether you're uh, black or white or brown, or whether you're, you know, more liberal or more conservative or more independent politically. We come together not because of any marker, any sort of tribal affiliation, any sort of background or heritage. We come together because Jesus is making a family from sinners. You know, um, I was thinking on Thursday uh, at the men's Bible study, and there were four of us, usually four or five of us. When we started that a few years ago, um, if you've been to that Panera in Deerfield, you walk into the right, and there's like a nook, right? And I kind of envisioned, I had this thought when we started, okay, you know, in a few years, this whole little nook is just going to be full of dudes, like Cross United dudes. Um, and uh, started with two or three guys and then grew four, five, six, and seven, and eight, and it kind of expanded and contracted, you know, and right now we're about five guys, and, and I think that's, that vision was not God's vision, at least for this season. And I think, is this successful? Um, you know, we're about the same as we were, and we're still here. And, and I, have to, I have to wonder, like, what, what is, how does God define success in that moment? And I look around, and I see, you know, Robert and Al and Gary and Charles and the other guys who have, have connected and, and maybe um, have, haven't been able to attend recently. And I think, man, we got, like, we have, like, the kingdom of God sitting at this table. We have like five generate five decades represented. We we have all sorts of different backgrounds and 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 stories sitting around the table. And I just wonder if if maybe God views success a little differently than we often do, than I often do. We're building a real community. And I know the ladies' Bible study, they could talk about that, and the community groups that'll start will talk about that. Pursue authentic community. Third, pursue joyful mission. Pursue joyful mission. So you got that invite card, right? Um, and, uh, 
you know, and I, I, this is me preaching to myself. I just, you know, I don't, you know, the, <laughs> I was listening to a talk um, by some preachers the other day about, you know, how, someone asked, how do you stay humble? And they say, well, it's pretty easy to stay humble when you're married, right? Because, um, you know, my wife sees, you know, I'm a lot better about talking about Christianity and, and following Jesus than I am at doing it. You know, I'm a sinner, and a, I'm an idiot, and I'm a, I, need, I need Jesus as much as you. So I'm sitting here, and I'm feeling convicted uh, about how easy it is to settle in and be comfortable and, and, and to settle in and, and, and faithfully and fruitfully on mission. We're, we're called to serve God and to tell the world the good news. Um, and it can be really easy to not do that. Um, and it can be easy to get into patterns of small talk where we're not entering into conversations about the things that really matter. Now, it doesn't mean you're an, a weirdo where you're like, you know, drive-by evangelism where people are like, does that person even really care about me? They're just like a target. Jesus. You know. Um, but we have to share. And that, that's all those invite cards are, are designed to do. Just make it maybe a little bit easier. Because, um, you know, it's easier to hand someone a card and say, hey, come to church, than it is to say, uh, if you did, died tonight, do you know for sure if you'd go to heaven? You know, like, I get that. Like, they're, they're, they're making coffee. They, they may not have time to, to answer that question for you. Compassion, it's justice. It's doing in the world the types of things that show a glimmer of the way God actually wants it to be. Sometimes we think, no, 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 all that matters is that we tell people about Jesus. Let me tell, let me, hear me now, that is the most important thing that any person needs. They need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That is the most important need of any person. That's the most impor- important need of any person. The most important need of your family, your kids, your network is to meet Jesus in an authentic and real way and turn from their sin and trust in him. But I want you to think about your own family and your own kids. You would never, you would never treat your kids like this. I'm going to tell them about Jesus and then just let them figure out the rest on their own. I'm not going to buy them clothes, you know, whatever. God will take care of them. I'm not going to give them a place to live. I'm not, not going to give them, I'm not going to feed them. The only thing that matters is their eternal soul. Now, is that the most important thing? Absolutely it is. My most important longing and prayer for my kids is that they would know Jesus and follow him all of their days. But I love them as whole persons. And that love that wants them, want, that, that inspires me to have them know Jesus is the same love that reminds me that they need tangible things to thrive in life. And so I think we need to love our neighbors that way. When it says love our neighbor, if all we're doing is caring for their soul and not honoring the fact that they are not just a disembodied soul, but they are actual human beings who are body and soul. Um, so that's why we're like doing the book drive. And no, we didn't forget. Still working on it. Um, was working on it this fall. And then uh, COVID came to town. And, you know, we're, you know, but, but we're not going to, we've got stuff lined up. We're going to be working on that. We're going to have a book packing party. Um, just a small way to show love in ways that we would want to show love to our own family and our own, the people we care about the most. We want to love people in that way. Here's the bottom line. Swashbuckling Christianity must yield to cross-bearing Christianity. 
You've got to lay down the sword so that you can take up the cross. I'm going to invite you to put down the sword of the world to take up the sword of the word. Uh, so if Jack Sparrow is not a great example of the type of Christian life we should live, um, who is? Well, you know where this is going. It's Iron Man. It's been a while. No Marvel references for a while. But I, I actually, one of the most poignant parts of the Marvel storyline, you know, is the first movie, Iron Man. Tony Stark is just this swaggering, arrogant, really kind of a swashbuckling personality. And by the end, by the last movie, at least in the, like, the series or whatever, in Endgame, Thanos, the bad guy, thinks he's got all the Infinity Stones and he's going to snap and kill half of the universe. He says, I am inevitable. And he snaps and there's no stones because they've been taken and Tony Stark has them in his little glove thing. Never mind the plot holes that's like, you know, Thanos' gauntlet had to be forged in the heart of a star, but Tony was able to like make one in the back you know, garage, like, you know, some holes in the plot, but it's still really, really good, okay? So he's got the thing, and he goes, I am inevitable, and then Tony goes, and I am Iron Man. And he snaps, and he, turn, he uses that same force for good to bring back everyone who had been lost and to destroy the armies of evil. So this guy goes from this swashbuckling, swaggering, arrogant, self-centered man to someone who lays down his life for the world. It's, it's a gospel echo right there in the story. And I think the way of the cross and the way of Jesus isn't defined primarily by its willingness to win for ourselves or for others, but to lose ourselves for the sake of others, to, to be willing to die so that others might live that's what Jesus did for us. So let's put down the sword. Father, in Jesus' name, by your Spirit, we ask you for your grace to lay down the ways in which we can tend to do your work in the world's way, and that you would open our hearts and our minds to, to discern those things and to tur turn away from those things to put the sword down put down the sword and to take up the cross.